Section 2 of The Bible Under Trial This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ron Altman The Bible Under Trial by James Orr THE PRESENT-DAY TRIAL OF THE BIBLE PART FOUR The Church is deeply concerned at the moment with the bearings and issues of what is called the higher criticism. It is well to understand what the feeling really is which lies at the bottom of this anxiety. It is not at all, in the first place, a feeling as to the general legitimacy of criticism. I do not believe, and the reception given to my own volume on the Old Testament confirms me in this opinion, that any really devout student of the Bible desires to tie up honest inquiry on any question of author, origin, date, or mode of composition of the biblical books, which does not involve clear contradiction of the Bible's own testimony on these subjects. By all means, if any traditional opinion can be shown by valid reasoning on sound data to be in error on such points, let it be corrected. The feeling as to the type of higher criticism now in vogue goes much deeper. What is felt is that this newer school of criticism, commonly known as the Wellhausen school, from its most distinguished representative, really subverts the basis of a reasonable faith in the Bible, and of a revelation of God contained in it altogether. There are moderate and devout men in this country, men whom personally one must honor, who seek to tone down the negations of the theory and breathe into it a more believing spirit. But for the exhibition of its principles, one prefers to go to the originators and accredited representatives of the school. And even in the works of the moderate critics, one soon discovers that the best efforts cannot remove the taint of rationalism which inheres in its very essence. It is not extravagant to say that on the most favorable showing in this theory, little is left of the patriarchal and mosaic history, that the Bible's own account of the origin, nature, and course of development of Israel's religion disappears, and an entirely different account resting on different premises, is substituted for it. That till the times of the prophets, at least, the supernatural recedes very much behind the natural, and miracle is hardly recognized. That practically all the legislation is taken from Moses, and ascribed to a much later date, while the Levitical system, in its main features, is held to be a post-exilian invention, 
imposing on the returned Jewish remnant a code of ritual which the prophets of an earlier age, had they known of it, would have vehemently denounced as dishonoring to Jehovah. Those who are acquainted with the literature of the school will admit, I think, that this is an exceedingly mild account of its general teaching, but if it is accepted, it surely sufficiently explains the repugnance with which the immense mass of Christian people in our churches regard this strange method of dealing with God's holy word. If in their denunciation of it they sometimes say and feel that it is really asking them to accept another Bible, they are not without justification for that opinion in certain utterances of the school itself. Here is a recent pronouncement by a distinguished representative of the more moderate wing of the school, Professor A. Westfall of Mount Alban. It is not in vain, he says, that the internal ferment provoked by the old struggles has troubled the church for long years, if it has not succeeded in furnishing the theological renovation which was expected from it, the work of dislocation of traditional ideas is none the less accomplished. Little by little the abyss has been dug between the catechism of the church, du temple, and the theology of the school. The day is coming when we shall be faced with two Bibles, the Bible of the faithful and the Bible of the scholar. End of quote. It would be easy to multiply quotations to the same effect, but this is sufficient at present to show the gravity of the issue by which the church is today confronted. It adds to the gravity of the case that according to the school itself, the critical views represented by it, so writes one, are at present all but universally held by Old Testament scholars. This, like many other statements of the school, requires, as we shall afterwards find, to be taken cum grano. But there is no doubt that for many years the Wellhausen school has been the dominant one, and has, in more or less pronounced forms, attracted an ever-increasing following to its banner, and that in Britain and America it is distinctly the ruling school still. Writers have almost ceased to argue about it, they are content to repeat its shibboleths, and register what they are pleased to call its settled results. It might appear as if the representative of the traditional view had nothing left for him to do but to pull down his flag and gratefully accept what crumbs of history, law, and prophetic teaching the last in larger measure, the critic is able to rescue for him from the general wreckage. Part 5
Before, however, giving way to undue alarm, the believer in the Bible, as we have been accustomed to understand it, will do well to place before his mind certain reassuring considerations which may help somewhat to modify a desponding judgment on the situation. I mention here only two or three of these, reserving further survey of this and other forms of trial of the Bible to succeeding papers. Number one. One preliminary consideration of some importance is that, after all, very much in the contentions of the Wellhausen school is not new, and what is new has not yet, as theories go, had a very long time to thoroughly test and establish itself. Dr. Schene, in his book on The Founders of Criticism, draws attention with justice to the great indebtedness of the earlier critical schools to English deism, pages 1 and 2. One is continually struck in reading the attacks on and defenses of the Old Testament in the old deistical controversy, with the surprising anticipations of the difficulties, errors, contradictions, imperfections, immoralities served up today as the newest learning in Old Testament criticism. Not a little on these subjects in modern books is already to be found as vigorously stated in Morgan and Bolingbroke and Paine and in the older rationalists like Vatke and Van Bolen. Yet faith in the Bible withstood the shock then, gave, moreover, exceedingly good reasons for doing so, and is not likely to be overturned by the reproduction of the same things now. On the other hand, what is new in the Wellhausen theory, particularly the post-exilian dating of the Levitical law, has not yet had a very long period of trial. The critical theory of which it is the outcome has been maturing for more than a century, but this part of it, though advanced tentatively by earlier investigators, met with little or no favor till twenty-five or thirty years ago, when in the wake of Graf's book in 1866, it caught on through the able advocacy of Cunin and Wellhausen. Previously to that, it had been generally rejected as an incredible folly. Cunin himself, in 1861, spoke of its grounds as not worthy of refutation. While therefore the Wellhausen theory has more recently had a remarkable success, it is still, as such things go, a comparative novelty, and it is quite too early yet to speak of it as a settled result. The history of the Tübingen school in New Testament criticism holds out, as we shall by and by see, a warning here. There were causes in the state of thought of our time which favored the rise of such a school, it was imported as a novelty, 
and rushed in this country by certain very able scholars. Adventitious circumstances gave it an artificial éclat, and predisposed younger scholars in a chivalrous spirit to adopt it. As its influence spread, it became a kind of tradition, a fashion of thought, and was often assented to because scholars said it without much independent examination of its grounds. Its somewhat gourd-like popularity is itself a good reason for being chary in yielding to it an unqualified assent. Number two, there is, however, a second consideration, which strongly fortifies this moral of the first. The school in question has had an astonishing success, but it is by no means the case that it has had all the field to itself, or that it has it now, or has it in any increasing degree. It is a fact that in every age excesses of criticism tend to work out their own cure. It was so in the Tübingen school, and so it is proving itself to be here. Scholars may talk as they will of settled results, but it is undeniable that extraordinary changes are taking place within the critical school, which augur ill for its future ascendancy. The Wellhausen theory applies the principle of evolution to the religion of Israel, but its own development is a remarkable illustration of the same principle. I shall have occasion later to speak of some of these developments. Enough at present to say that they run the theory into such excesses in multiplication of sources, minute dissection of documents, extension of time in the process, complicated operations in combination and redaction, that the theory literally breaks down under its own weight and becomes incredible to soberly thinking minds. I have compared it in my book to the constant adding on of cycles and epicycles in the Ptolemaic astronomer's chart till it became a huge maze of confusion which defied belief. The theory, in my humble opinion, is rapidly running to seed, by its very excesses, is digging its own grave. Number three. This leads me to say next, that in point of fact, great changes are already apparent in influential quarters in the state of opinion on Old Testament questions and greater changes are surely imminent in the near future. I do not refer to the still powerful body of opinion on the continent that refuses adhesion to the Wellhausen program, a great deal more powerful than many imagine, or to the changes in individual opinion that occasionally occur, though these also are noteworthy as signs of the times. One may notice, however, as of special significance, the decisive break of leading archaeologists as Seishi, Homo, Halevé, 
Ditliff Nielsen, with the Wellhausen theory, which most of them had earlier accepted. My own conviction is that there is at the present moment a considerable and growing amount of distrust of the methods and conclusions of the reigning critical school in the minds of both clergy and laity in our own country. It is but a straw showing which way the wind blows, but one cannot but be interested in the statement made by Dr. Robertson Nicoll in his notice of the late Dr. George Matheson, that after a period of sanguine acceptance of the processes and results of the higher criticism, as expounded by Professor W. R. Smith, and of the doctrine of evolution, he came in later life, quote, to disbelieve in the higher criticism and in the doctrine of evolution, at least in its extreme form, unquote. It is, however, something far more wide-reaching I have in view in the remark just made as to impending revolutionary changes in critical opinion. The truth is, the placards are again changing, and a new school has already arisen. The so-called historical-critical school which is gathering to it the younger generation of scholars, and which in its heart regards Wellhausenism as pretty much obsolete. It is not on that account more believing, but is in some respects more destructive. Yet its critical positions show a marked return in a conservative direction. I might illustrate from H. Gunkel, the influential professor at Berlin, but prefer to take a single example from an address delivered recently at a conference at Eisenach by the learned Orientalist Hugo Winkler, a leading representative of this tendency. This remarkable address is nothing less than a vigorous assault on the whole foundation of the Wellhausen theory of the religion of Israel in its advance from a tribal god to ethical monotheism in the age of the prophets, and in its alleged successive stages of nomad religion, agricultural religion, prophetic religion, and legal religion. Winkler assails the theory root and branch, and boldly declares that there has been no development of the kind. He decisively rejects the Cardinal Wellhausen tenet of the origin of the Levitical law in the exile, and contends that law and prophets must have been present from the beginning. He mentions that he also is here recanting an earlier view. Here is a revolution indeed, one prophetic of much more. In how curious a light, after such a pronouncement, appears the talk about settled results. Number four. One other circumstance I would mention as tending to a recoil in many minds from the prevalent methods in Old Testament criticism, and I refer to it only in a word. 
It is the spectacle afforded in recent works of what these methods really mean when applied with like unflinching boldness to the documents and history of the New Testament. It is a remarkable feature in the existing critical situation that the critics, having apparently sucked their orange well-nigh dry in the Old Testament, are now precipitating themselves in increasing numbers on the New Testament, with the result that its texts, narratives, and portraiture of the life of Jesus and of the early church are being subjected to the same treatment as had laid in ruins the patriarchal and mosaic history. Here, however, the matter touches the Christian conscience too closely. Abraham and Moses may go in fidelity to the historical method, but if Christ is to be taken away, there is a start of shocked surprise. A halt must be called, and the methods that lead to such a result must be carefully looked into. Here the new historical critical method is in its element, with its comparative mythology and reduction of the narratives of the nativity and resurrection into legends. One is interested in this connection to see the strenuous protest being made by so convinced an Old Testament critic as Professor C. A. Briggs in defense of the virgin birth. Again, perhaps only a straw, but a significant one. This rejuvenation of assault upon the New Testament will also occupy us later. Scope of the Papers The purpose and scope of the papers collected in this volume will now, I hope, be sufficiently apparent written from the standpoint of assured faith in the revelation of God in the Scriptures, they are intended to remove disquietude, confirm faith, and set forth considerations which may serve to show that, severe as the trial is to which the Bible is at present subjected, it will emerge from the ordeal as heretofore unscathed and may be depended on to retain its place in the devout regard of Christian people as the repository of the living oracles of God for the guidance and salvation of mankind. End of Section 2